There are 98 uh, airline attorneys or aviation attorneys in, C like in Washington alone. I don't even know what that is. That is such a specific subset. If you're competing with 97 other people if you're doing that. Right. Your practice area, even though niches are great, your practice area is never going to distinguish you from your opponents. Your skills is never going to distinguish you from other people in your practice area. The only way you can really distinguish yourself as a firm is who you are and what your values are. And so what I tell people is, you know, think about the importance of value is why should I hire you instead of the firm down the street that does the exact same thing? I'm Jack Newton, CEO of Clio, and this is the Daily Matters podcast. On Daily Matters, we talk with legal professionals, industry leaders, and subject matter experts about the future of law. We explore where the legal industry is headed, how legal practice is changing, and what you can be doing to position yourself for success. Today, we're joined by Jordan Couch, a workers' compensation attorney and partner at Palace Law in Seattle, Washington. Jordan, thanks so much for joining us today. Thanks for having me. It's an honor. So Jordan, let's start off. Uh, tell us what's on your mind most right now. Oh my gosh, on my mind most right now, well, there's, you know, we're starting to reopen our office a little bit and that's been on my mind a lot. Um, and salmon seasoning is opening soon, so that's on my mind a lot, but mostly lately it's been a lot of work with, you know, the bar associations and activism and what's going on around the country and in my home. Uh, and there is a lot going on in your, in your backyard. Um, and, and we'll talk more about that, but before we, we talk about that, can you just tell us a little bit more about yourself and your role at Palace Law? Yeah, so you mentioned I'm a partner here at Palace Law and I'm a workers' compensation attorney. But in addition to that role, I am the managing, part, I'm the managing attorney of the workers' compensation team in our office. We do workers' comp and personal injury. And then I'm the cultural ambassador of Palace Law. So part of my job is you know, managing the team. Part of my job is litigating cases. And then part of my job is making sure we at Palace Law are embracing our firm culture, are hiring on it, making decisions based on it, and are encouraging people to advocate for themselves and for our firm around our culture. So I'd love to spend a minute talking about that, Jordan. You talk and write a lot about firm culture. We've had you at ClioCon speak about exactly that in the past. It's something you're really passionate about. And law firm culture isn't something you hear about all that, all that much. And you're certainly one of the loudest voices about its importance. And I'm wondering if you can just tell us what, what kind of journey you took and maybe realizing how important firm culture is and how you've what being a, an ambassador for your firm culture looks like. So really the journey began with us learning about the way other businesses work. And a very influential part of that was going up to the Clio offices and seeing the way you had your core values up in posters all over your walls, which we've copied here at Palace Law now. And we decided to do that as a firm. So the management team got together and talked about what our mission was, what our values are, and identified those. And as part of that, they thought, how do we you know, make this something that's not a buzzword? How do we implement this and make sure this is part of our everyday lives? And so they decided to appoint me as the cultural ambassador. Um, and as I started looking into this, you know, I had to not just exhibit the values myself, but I had to think about why this is important so I can communicate that to people on our team. And you know, what it really came down to for me looking at it is firm culture is the way you distinguish yourself as a law firm. Because you know, the reality is, if you ask a bunch of lawyers, you know, what makes them better, right? The, they might say that they're, you know, the best attorney around, but that's not true. 50% of them have to be below average attorneys out there, right? Right. And if you look at, you know, the competition that's out there, there are 98 uh, airline attorneys or aviation attorneys in, C like in Washington alone. 
I don't even know what that is. That is such a specific subset. If you're competing with 97 other people, if you're doing that, right. your practice area, even though niches are great, your practice area is never going to distinguish you from your opponents. Your skills is never going to distinguish you from other people in your practice area. The only way you can really distinguish yourself as a firm is who you are and what your values are. And so what I tell people is, you know, to think about the importance of value is why should I hire you instead of the firm down the street that does the exact same thing? That's why where your firm matters. That's why your culture matters because your culture is what answers that question. Right. I think that's so interesting because it does run counter to how many, many law firms try to position themselves, which is, you know, based on the fact that you graduated at the top of your class in law school or received these awards or you're the, the best in some way. And, and as you pointed out, even if you're a client in that specific practice area looking for uh, the best attorney, how you measure that, how you actually quantify that is, is a super difficult thing. And, and not to mention marketing how you're the best in any really explicit way contravenes most bar regulations to that effect anyhow. Yeah, you know, there was a great um, survey done on Twitter a while ago where I think, I can't remember who did it, but they'd asked two questions of lawyers. The first question was, how do you distinguish yourself? And was, you know, marketing, by doing good work, all these things. And the majority answer was people said, you know, doing good legal work is how you distinguish yourself as an attorney. Right. Then they asked another Twitter poll, just a separate question of, do clients know good legal work when they see it? And the answer was a resounding no. Right, right. (laughs) And it's because the reality is we don't, you know, clients don't see that. They don't see the differences, but they connect with you. And most clients hire someone based on the person interacting with. So you talk about marketing. Part of my job is to make sure that we are marketing our firm values out to people so that when they come to our office, they're not hiring us because we do workers comp and they saw us first. They're hiring us because we, they know we're relentless, persistent, self-motivated, we're creative, we're trustworthy, we do the right thing. That's why they're hiring us. And when they come in and sit down and talk to me, I go over that before they ever get to sign a contract with me. I spend a lot of time talking about what my firm values are. And I say, if this is not what you want, I can recommend someone else who fits your values. But this is my values and this is what I'm promising to do for you. And so if this is what you want, hire me. It, it's, it's so interesting because it feels like that message and that frame of mind that you have is, is maybe more relevant than ever in the COVID-19 era where we, we see people seeking out personal connections. And, and one of the themes I've heard over the course of doing this podcast over and over again is that clients are enjoying seeing the more human side of their lawyers, even seeing their lawyers working out of their home and seeing their dogs or kids wander into the Zoom call frame. Uh, they, they've enjoyed um, seeing their lawyers be a bit more real and a bit more vulnerable. And, uh, and, and lawyers have enjoyed that as well, kind of letting down some of the the guard a little bit and some of the, the artifice that might exist uh, where you feel like you need to be a specific way and practice in a specific type of law office and pra- wear a certain kind of suit. That's gone away a little bit in, uh, in COVID-19. Do you have any observations on that front? Yeah, it really does. And, you know, that had gone away in our office for a long time. You know, if you come to our office, you see the dogs. We have an Instagram account dedicated to the dogs and the pets of our office called <laughs> Palace Pa, right? Like we, we embrace that. One of our core values is to be our unique, authentic, real selves. And when I talk about that, a lot of lawyers have been very resistant with me. of like they don't want their clients to see their personal side of themselves. But what I tell them is when clients are coming to you, they are asking you, sometimes entrusting you with their lives literally, Most likely though, they're trusting you with the most important thing that is happening in their lives. This is the biggest deal. They're spending more money on it than they ever have before. They're more stressed about it than they've ever been in their life before. And they're handing this over to you. And if you are a closed box where you are just an attorney, they're never gonna feel that comfort with you to be able to really 
connect with you and feel safe. And so I considered it like an essential client service almost to be a human with people that you're interacting with. Because if you're asking them to trust you, they need to feel like they know you and you need to trust them enough to show your real self to them. And if they don't like who you really are, you're probably not going to want to work with them. Right. Yeah, that's that's so true. Um, and, and by the way, I didn't realize that that Cleo was so directly uh, an inspiration for the the Palace Law culture. That's really cool to hear. Yeah, the, the posters we have up in our office came. That idea came from you all um, when we were up there visiting. Very cool. So, that's yeah. great. That's great. Um, well, let's talk more about uh, what's going on in your backyard with the Chaz and, and some of the other uh, interesting developments we've seen in the Seattle area. You, you've been tweeting about your experience living adjacent to the Capitol Hill Autonomous Zone, yeah. uh, which for those that aren't aware is a region in Seattle that uh, has been occupied by protesters responding to the murder of George, George Floyd. Um, can you tell us a little bit more about your experiences there? Yeah, so, and it's going by the, the CHOP now, the Capitol Hill Occupied Protest. Um, but, you know, I've, I lived very adjacent to this neighborhood. It, it's Capitol Hill in Seattle. It's kind of this Pike Pine district. And I used to live on one side of it. Now I live on the other side of it, actually. I moved just recently. And so it's a neighborhood I know and love and know, go to the businesses there a lot. And so this march that was going through got stopped there. And there was kind of a standoff for a long time. And I was there at the protest a couple of times trying to kind of just show my support. And then I started seeing a lot of family members reaching out to me, kind of concerned about what was going on. And so I realized there was a lot of you know, information getting spread that wasn't necessarily the experience I was having of violence, of fear. And so what I you know, realized is I had a voice and I needed to use it. And so I started getting out on Twitter and you know, mostly you know, sending out things from people that are there, letting people know, you know firsthand accounts of what's going on and also sharing my own experience of I had gone through there, I had walked through there, I knew the business owners, they were happy and they were supporting this, right? Places that I frequent had been closed but opened themselves up to support these protests that were going on. Um, and so, you know, it wasn't what I'd seen. What I saw there was, yes, there were some people hanging out, but mostly it was a lot of activists working together to try to build a plan for the future of Seattle and the ideas there. And it wasn't, you know, there were a lot of leaders there. It was a leaderless protest, but there are a lot of city leaders and community leaders that were heavily involved in that process all along the way. We had city councilors there. We had state senators there, uh, state representatives. We had uh, a woman who's been heavily involved in that, Nikita Oliver, a fellow lawyer who took the bar exam when I did. Uh, and, you know, she ran for mayor and took third in our, in our primary in our last election. And she's been heavily involved in this as well as a community organizer and activist. So it's been a really mostly positive organization right now that's been doing a lot of good work. So the, the CHAZ has evolved into the, the, the CHOP. Can you tell us more about what it looks like there today? How, how are things changing over time? Yeah, so it's starting to diminish the physical presence a little bit. Um, and I think uh, what I've heard say really well, spoken really well was that, you know, at this point in time, CHOP is not a place, it is an idea, it is an organization, it is a movement that is happening right now. And so it's decentralized. It's a lot of groups that have united around demands and they, they will refer to, they say, we, ha we have no specific leader, these demands are our leader. We are all working together through different avenues whether it's city council, whether it's community activism, or whether it's just protesting and marching, we are all working towards these common demands that we have. And so it's, you know, the, the occupied part is starting to reduce more and more over time now, um, as people are energized in other ways and are working with city council and are starting to fight on different fronts for this. So what's what I'd say is changing now is the occupied part is diminishing and now it's more of a just movement that is building in other ways. 
Um, and can you tell us a little bit more about what you've seen firsthand as it relates to the, the clashes you've seen between protesters and the police? Yeah, I was, uh, I thankfully avoided being firsthand present for any of the tear gassing that went on during this time. But I've been, you know, part of this in the past and I've worked with the National Lawyers Guild as a legal observer in the past and both as a legal observer and as a participant in protest, I had seen kind of a, a tendency in Seattle towards uh, trying a little too aggressively to shut down protests. You know, my, I, I once watched a um, police officer in riot gear get silly strings sprayed on him and the response was flashbangs and tear gas thrown into this crowd of people, some of whom were sitting down in a circle, right? Um, it's, it's been heavy handed, it's been, you know, <laughs> When there was a standoff with the police, it was a scary time. Uh, there were tear gassings every single night in that neighborhood. There were rubber bullets being fired. Uh, it was, you know, when the police decided to kind of let the people occupy that area, it did become a lot calmer for quite a while, which was really nice to see a kind of peaceful move out of that. So it's, the anger is understood. And this is something that's been building in Seattle for a while. You know, if that, Seattle's under a federal consent decree uh, under the police that's been going on for a while. And so it's nice to see that this movement has really brought some changes and already, you know, even though they're continuing to work, they've already seen, they've, they've made progress together doing this motion. They've, you know, Seattle withdrew its attempt to have the federal consent decree revoked. Um, the city council passed a ban on chokeholds. The city council passed a ban on using tear gas and rubber bullets. So they've, they've done a lot during this most recent protest, which is good to see. Something we've talked about a lot on uh, Daily Matters over the past few weeks is how the how lawyers and the legal community more broadly can better affect social change. What's your perspective on that, Jordan, in terms of how lawyers can help, how they can help on the ground, how they can help those uh, that have maybe been, been impacted by the, the, the protests, uh, been, been arrested, detained, whatever the case might be. How do you see lawyers fitting into this, this equation? So I think lawyers are inextricably tied to this. And the reason is, you know, lawyers are a member of the judiciary branch, right? That's what we do. But at the same time, the skills and knowledge that we have applies really well to the executive branch and the legislative branch, the things that, and this covers what is happening, right? That is, we have inside knowledge of the work that needs to be done, how it needs to be done, and the processes behind a lot of this, right? And not to mention we have firsthand abilities to help people who are detained, who are arrested. That's that's what we do for a living, right? And so I think lawyers sometimes underestimate their power in these situations because we have, I would just honestly say there's so much that we can do, right? You know, you don't have, I'd say if you feel like you can advocate for people and represent people pro bono, that's phenomenal. Do that. That's an easy thing you can do and help people get out there and really, you know, work for people. But if you can't do that, you know, use your knowledge to help get voices to government. And that's something I've been trying to do through my Twitter presence, through reaching out to my city councilors is, not you know, necessarily speaking out in my own way, but I know the process. I know how city government works because I have knowledge of the legal systems that built these things. Right. That, you know, built these systems, honestly, to exclude people and for lawyers, right? These systems were built for us, not for the people that it's supposed to serve. So we need to use that knowledge to get the voices that need to be heard in front of our city councilors, in front of our legislatures. That's a really powerful skill that we as lawyers have is this insider knowledge into what's going on. And last but not least, you know, I mentioned that people often feel kept outside of this system. As lawyers, one thing we can do is just invite people into the system and offer help to them. You know, personally, I don't feel comfortable representing people pro bono on criminal cases. I don't do criminal law. I'm not 
prepared to do that. And so rather than me trying to step in and messing up, I'd rather them get a public defender or get a pro bono as lawyer from the National Lawyers Guild and have that person help them through this process because they will do it better than I could. But that doesn't mean I can't help people. And I'll tell you one story on that is the first night that protests really got broke out in Seattle, I you know was unable to be out there, but I felt like I needed to do something. So I got on Twitter and was projecting voices, was magnifying, you know, the National Lawyers Guild, the Northwest uh, Community Bail Fund, their voices out there to make sure people knew these resources were available. And when a curfew got put in place five minutes before people were supposed to evacuate downtown without public transportation, I said, look, if anyone needs help, let me know. And that led to later that night, someone tagged me in some tweet from a kid who, and I had, uh, you know, young man whose friend had been arrested in Seattle and he didn't know what to do. And I wasn't going to represent his friend again. I don't do criminal law. But what I was able to do that night was take a call from him, talk to him about, you know, what was going on, direct him to the resources he needed to get his friend taken care of. And so the next day, his friend was released. And I didn't do any of that work, right? All I did was take a call from this kid and talk to him for 10 minutes about what the legal system is looking like for him. And that provided comfort to him. And I think lawyers often forget that one of the powers we have is just to give people some knowledge and comfort. They're coming to us with problems. Even if we can't immediately solve them, if we can at least talk them through what they're facing because their problem is an unknown and we know it. Let them yeah. know what that, you know, help them understand it and they'll feel better and more comfortable. Just understanding how to navigate the system and, and not realizing how opaque that is to the average person. And I think a lot of lawyers don't realize how much knowledge they have because we, we take for granted that everyone knows how city councils work. Everyone knows how legislatures work. Everyone knows how the executive process works. We, we take that for granted because we have taken classes on that and are studying on this and work within a system that is similar to that, if not directly part of that. So we forget that we have this really powerful knowledge that is, you know, just get it out there, people. Let them know what they need to do. Let them know how they can get their own voice heard. That's a helpful thing a lawyer can do. So another uh, completely different topic, shifting gears in a dramatic way, I'd, I'd love to talk to you about as well that you're, you're really closely involved with Jordan is, is bar exams. And you've don donated a lot of your time uh, and been very involved with law schools and law students. Uh, and bar exams have been obviously uh, impacted in big way by COVID-19. Can you tell us a little bit more about what you're seeing on the ground and what some of the, the issues you see at hand being? Yeah, now you're gonna start getting into my really radical opinions about the bar exam. <laughs> but so what's, you know, what's going on is the old system for the bar exam was everyone has to get together twice a year into one room for two days and take a test. That is like the absolute worst possible scenario you can imagine for a pandemic. I mean, not to mention right. during this time, at least when I took the bar exam, I was not allowed to bring in my own water my own food, my own, you know, I couldn't wear a hoodie. Um, I couldn't bring in my own earplugs. I couldn't bring in anything that, you know, that was, that was all provided to me. So like you're drinking out of a communal water for two days and getting your yeah, earplugs it, that are out on a table for everyone to grab, you know, that's. It, it feels like if you wanted to design an environment to maximize yeah. coronavirus transmission, it might be something like the, the yeah. way a typical bar exam is run. Exactly, right? It's just, it's the worst possible thing. And so this has been heavily impacting because, you know, I think there was an acknowledgement early on that this was a problematic system. But the problem was there was no alternative. There is, there has never been an alternative. We've never looked at doing an online bar exam before. We've never looked at 
diploma privilege in a real serious way. We've never looked at what happens if you can't have the bar exam. We've never even looked at having a bar exam distributed between multiple rooms or multiple, you know, separating days, right? It's all everyone on the same two days together. So there was a lot, a big scramble with a lot of places. And I think because of that lack of innovation in the past, most states felt really bound by they have to just do exactly what they've always done or modify it slightly. You know, Washington State's original proposal was to have multiple sites so they could have better distancing during this two-day exam where people are still shut in a room together for two days. It's, it's bad. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting, you know, COVID-19 has, has forced so many industries and especially in, in legal, even we've seen the courts pivot and adapt in, in what I at least see as a pretty agile way to the demands of this new reality. And it, it feels like maybe the most steadfast dug in, let's do it the way we've always done it, or maybe a, a slight variation of how we've always done it is, is the bar exam. Why do you think there's this unbelievable amount of inertia around even the concept of a bar exam? It, it doesn't see, it seems like if anything was going to prompt the question, should the bar exam even exist in the way it does, uh, in, in 2020, uh, it doesn't seem like the COVID-19 crisis has managed to do that. Uh, can you speak to that for a moment? Yeah, I think the two biggest factors I've seen pushing back on this are just fear and um, inertia. And, and there's a little bit of like a fairness angle to it as well. But the, you know, the fairness is people saying, well, I had to take the bar exam. So it's unfair if someone else doesn't, which, you know, I get it is unfair that you had to take the bar exam. But what I say is we can't let, you know, the past unfairness prevent us from doing the right thing for the present and the future. The bigger risk we're seeing Almost is, looking at this, the bar exam as a, I had to go through uh, this hazing yeah. ritual and you need to go through it as well. Yeah, which, you know, I get it, but progress, right? I took the bar exam, right. I thought it was miserable, I passed. I don't think anyone should, else should have to do that. Um, but the fear and inertia thing is a bigger thing because the bar exam has been around for longer than law schools have been around in our modern system. You know, they began in the 1800s, you know, as a way to step away from the system of apprentices going in front of a judge who would ask them questions like, what is evidence? Or whatever the judge felt was an important question that day and then decide, yes, you can be an attorney. No, you can't be an attorney yet apprentice for a while longer. Uh, so they tried to standardize that and that's when the bar exam came out in the 1800s. But then in the early 1900s, there was the simultaneous push for the modern law school and for the modern bar exam. Mm -hmm. And so there's never really been a question of, are those two things duplicative of each other, right? If we have a modern law school, why do we need to also force these students to pass a bar exam if they've already graduated law school? And what's happened here is just we've had the bar exam for so long, there's also no data about it. We assumed in the beginning that it was useful to help determine if someone is qualified to be a lawyer. The only evidence we have that that is actually true is that, well, some people fail it every year, therefore we assume some people are not qualified to be a lawyer. But because the people who fail it never get to practice law, we don't know that they wouldn't actually be good lawyers. Right. And so there's just this fear. And I think that's the biggest driving force is no one knows what happens if we don't have a bar exam. We just don't know. Like, will there be people who are bad lawyers out there? I think the data will point, does point otherwise if you look at, you know, relevant data to it. But there's a lot of fear. And what kind of got me involved in this was... Some and the question is, as you really pointed out, like, why do we have law schools producing lawyers that wouldn't be fit to practice? And is that the problem you go solve? as opposed to trying to apply this filter uh, yeah. post hoc. That's exactly why I got involved in this, is I found out that the deans of the law schools had made a statement when law students brought it up, 
they had reached, they had all unanimously support said no to diploma privilege. And I just, it blew my mind because I'm thinking, how are these deans not taking this opportunity to stand up and say, no, no, my students are absolutely qualified to practice law. Instead, they're saying, no, we charged them $150,000, educated them for three years, but they might not be qualified to practice law. Right. This is a glorified apprenticeship program. Yeah. Right? Like, what, what happened there? So that, just, that was a disconnect that just upset me, and I decided I had to jump on and help out with this as much as I could. So what, what, are, you, what are you seeing in terms of the outcomes that you're, you're trying to drive? Where are you getting hung up? Where, where do you think we'll, we'll land over the remainder of 2020 as it relates to bar exams and the impacts it'll have it, on students uh, taking the bar? I, I genuinely believe that 2020 is going to mark the end of the bar exam. Um, not immediately, but it's going to happen because I think we're seeing, we're gonna see more and more states move to diploma privilege. You know, Florida came out and said they might cancel the bar exam up to the day before. Um, Washington just made the move and switched over um, because one of the deans, you know, reached out and changed and said we should have diploma privilege. So Washington switched over and said we are now having diploma privilege in Washington after first rejecting the idea. And they're just a blanket diploma privilege for all ABA JD students. There are no requirements for hours of training or anything like that. It's just done. And I think what's going to happen as part of that is I've pushed and we've recommended to the Washington State Bar that they have a committee created around this to study the bar exam. And Utah is doing the same thing. And I imagine more states, any state that ends up doing diploma privilege will end up doing a study about the bar exam. And I strongly suspect based on the data that I've seen is that what they're going to find is there is no correlation between effective lawyering and passing the bar exam. And that the people who got diploma privilege are going to be great attorneys, no different than those who did not get diploma privilege, right? And I think when you see that, it's going to be hard to justify the bar exam. I think there will be a push, though. Um, you know, people will try to say, well, let's modify the bar exam, right? Um, but I think at that same time, we'll have to push that say, no, let's just have a legal education system that only graduates qualified attorneys. Why do another exam on top yeah. of that? But, yeah. It feels like it, it comes down to inclusivity as well, where they're, I'm sure, amazing attorneys that are, or potential attorneys that never get to become an attorney because they're, they're not the, the kind of person that can pass an exam like the bar exam. And that, that does not necessarily imply that they, they can't practice law effectively. What are, what's your perspective on that? You know, there was a really, really great study um, done by LSAC, actually, who runs the LSAT Commission in 2008. And I would highly recommend anyone who's interested in that take a look at that study. It doesn't address the bar exam, but there's been lots of studies that show a correlation between LSAT scores, law school grades, and passing the bar exam. It's kind of, it's, these are tests, they are linear, yeah. people who are good at one test are good at another test. And what this LSAC study showed is that if they looked at, you know, law school grades and LSAT scores, and tried to perceive what, whether or not that predicted effective lawyering. And effective lawyering was defined by like 26 categories from lawyers and 786 types of actions that person would do, like extensive study. And what they found is that there is absolutely no correlation between LSAT scores, grades, and effective lawyering. None at all. What they also found that I thought was really interesting is there are correlations, you know, evidence to show that LSAT scores and grades as a measure can also exclude minorities and women from the profession. Right. Simultaneously to that, they did a lot, they looked at a bunch of um, personality and behavioral tests to study lawyers. Because if you look at malpractice complaints and ethics complaints, most of them don't have to do with substantive law. They have to do with behavioral issues that lawyer encounters along the way. Fatigue from overwork, these kinds of things that lead to malpractice complaints and ethics concerns. 
And the study showed that when they looked at behavioral tests, just to kind of study someone's, you know, character, those tests were heavily correlated with effectiveness as lawyers and had no disparate, like disparate results among minorities and women and women. So I really think, you know, this data-driven idea, and like you mentioned, like looking at people's character, looking at, you know, whether they have the behavioral skills to be a lawyer is an important aspect of that. Jordan, I don't know if you'd consider this too strong a statement, but when we talk about systemic racism and we talk about systemic discrimination, uh, the, the bar exam can be part of that, that equation. And, you know, maybe you talked about the LSAT as well, just the, the kinds of implicit bias that are being captured in some of the systems that encapsulate law school. Yeah, you know, I'm not the expert on this, but I've been doing a lot of research on this because I'm a firm believer in, as you know, data-driven processes and approaches to things. And what I'm finding is, you know, with any of these kind of standardized tests, some of them have racial histories. Many of them do have disparate impacts, though, along racial lines. And so these are, these are barriers that are keeping out good people for bad reasons. Yeah. Agree. Uh, Jordan, this has been a Fascinating conversation. Thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, wrapping up, I'm wondering if there's one thing you'd like our listeners to take away from our conversation today. Yeah. So, you know, when I was talking to these law students that I was working with on the diploma privilege aspect, one thing I tried to stress to them is they needed to use their own voices because they had very powerful voices. And I think one thing I like to, I want to remind lawyers of is we have an incredibly powerful voice by virtue of our license. People respect us. People look up to us us, people see us as knowledgeable, these systems, that license gives us a lot of power. And a lot of, you know, people look to us for, as, for leadership during these times. And so we need to use those. We need to use our social media presences, right? It's, I think people underestimate the power of these things. You know, my social media following is not very big, but it's bigger than the population of my hometown in Montana where I went to high school, right? Like, <laughs> and I, that's, that's a powerful thing. And so I think the one thing I just want to encourage lawyers to know is, you know, law is the foundation of society these issues that are coming up are about social issues are about law. That's what this comes down to. And so we need to use our voices, whatever you believe in, get out there, use your voice, recognize that you have a powerful impact. if You do that. And if we do want to leave things like the bar exam in the rearview mirror, it, it is a powerful voice to hear from someone that went through it and makes the statement that they don't want anyone else to have to go through it and that they maybe feel like it doesn't actually help select the best people uh, for the, the role. Yeah, the biggest barrier a lot of law students not taking the bar are going to face is lawyers looking down on them for not taking the bar. It is our duty to look up to these people, to accept them into our profession, and to just welcome them and support them. That's what we need to do is support each other as lawyers. Oh, it's an awesome message, Jordan. Thank you for uh, coming here today to give us your perspective and, and views. It's been amazing. And uh, thanks again. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Thanks for joining us on Daily Matters, a podcast from Clio. Rate and review wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe so that you never miss an episode. Daily Matters is produced by Andrew Booth, Sam Rosenthal, and Derek Bolin, and hosted by yours truly, Jack Newton. Thanks also to Clio, the world's leading cloud-based legal technology provider for supporting this podcast.